Welcome to yet another episode of Shortcast Over Coffee. My guest today is Chief Tim Chavez from the State of California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, also called Cal Fire. As many of you would know, wildfires are a major threat in California, especially during the hot, dry summer and fall months. Massive wildfires frequently break out across the state, burning hundreds and thousands of acres. These intense fires are difficult to contain, often cause tremendous damage. Chief Chavez has been with Cal Fire for over 40 years and has huge amount of experience with putting off challenging fires like the campfire in 2018. He is a legend in his field and it's my honor to have him on the show. In this episode, I will talk to Chief Chavez about his own journey as a firefighter, how technology has helped Cal Fire. major learnings from recent fires in california and what we as a society should learn from them without further ado let's get into the conversation hi tim welcome to the podcast hi glad to be here um uh, yeah i was uh, reading about you and um, it turns out that you went to colorado state university uh, yeah for a degree in forest fire service and this is late 70s from what i understand yeah um, you know it's 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 an early early enough age for someone to to pick something so challenging uh, did you always want to be a firefighter what what motivated you to take this major well i i consider myself lucky because uh since i was 10 or 11 years old uh, this is what always what i wanted to do and i uh, um I grew up in an area that was very fire prone so lots of fires around the 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 local area that you could see from anywhere in town and uh you know I was very familiar with the, the planes that were used on the fires you know as they flew over the house and uh one of my neighbors was a his brother was a volunteer firefighter so he would come home and tell us stories and so that kind of planted the seed and then um yeah i just kind of from there I, i i like i said i feel lucky that i always knew what i wanted to do and when i got to doing it it was exactly what i was hoping it would be like and i loved every minute of it that it's quite a privilege right i mean getting to know someone oh, amazing. from yeah someone from close quarters and having to or or you know knowing what you want to do for the rest of your life at such an early age is um uh, not many people uh, would get that sort yeah. of a no I, i consider it a great blessing yeah how did your parents react uh, when you said uh, i'm that I, that you wanted to be a firefighter because uh, you know it's such a challenging job it's something as challenging as going to the military right so they were not too uh, excited about it um I think part of that was part of that was the the danger, you know, part, but part of it was that, you know, they were always hoping I would go to college and it, it seemed like a kind of a blue collar job. But when I was able to point out to them that there was some academics involved and uh uh you know, here was these degree programs and I was wanting to go to I applied to University of Montana, uh Colorado State University and I think at the time it was U- University of Washington. 
that all kind of had a small fire program with wildland fire management at the time. And I got accepted to Colorado State. So I was I was very excited to go and um, that kind of smoothed it over a little bit for them. But uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a tough sell. Yeah, uh, I just want to understand, uh, you know, the college process back in the 70s uh, uh, for a major like this. What was what was the coursework like? Uh, did you spend a whole lot time in the classroom or was it all practical and like outdoors? Well, the core of the the core of the degree was forestry, which is just exactly what you would think. It's measuring trees and harvesting and planning sales and all, all that stuff. But uh, I don't know, maybe out of the 128 units, maybe 20% of them were actually dealing with fire science stuff, model fire behavior modeling and weather, fire weather, fire ecology, um, fire management in kind of a broad sense. And uh, uh, most of it was classroom, but there was the summer camp that we had to go to. And then I was working every summer in fire from, from the time I was in high school, every summer job I ever had was being a firefighter. So they had a, they had a, uh, like an internship that you had to do, but since I was working every summer, I didn't really have to do that. Um, so yeah, it was, it, it, it was a really good, um, kind of a foundation to build my career on. And, and, and a lot of the knowledge that I gained there, I really didn't use for 10 or 20 years. But after I was advanced more in my career, I really appreciated. Uh, I had two professors that were just amazing. They were really relatable and really approachable. Uh, Philip Omi and uh, uh, Richard Laven. And uh, they they had both had fire experience and they were deeply involved in in the topics that I was interested in. So we got along great and and uh, it was just really a good start. I got to know a lot of people that uh, were in the business and uh, we went to conferences together and, you know, it was just really great. Uh, yeah. Yeah, what amazes me is that, uh, you know, for, for that time, uh, you know, there was a major in, in forest fire science. Uh, that That's quite amazing because, you know, we we're talking late seventies and maybe the knowledge was not this broad. Uh, and just thinking back, uh, it, it's quite amazing. Um, so it was been... one of the first for sure. Ah, okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So you, you wrap up your degree and then do you move to California immediately? Uh, do you start working with Cal Fire? So I moved back to California, uh, after graduation, um, I had worked I had worked two summers in California, bef like before school, and then I I had found a job in Colorado, so I didn't have to move back home every summer. And I worked in the northern Colorado area um, as a fire patrolman uh, for two seasons. Um, Colorado was not like it is now. Now it's really a fire. Uh, prone area. When I was there, uh, the summers were very wet and we had very few fires. Um, so it was kind of slower than I was used to. 
So after two summers there, I, I got a job back in California with the U.S. Forest Service on the Angeles National Forest. And I worked two summers there, which was more what I was used to, you know, more action, bigger fires. Um, I was a, uh, a fuels specialist, which meant I went around measuring and planning burns and stuff like that. But I also got good experience with the local hotshot crew there. I went out with the crew um, quite a few times those two summers. So I got that experience as well. And uh, uh, it was really fun, really good time. And then after graduation, I did come back to CAL FIRE. Uh, at that time, it was called CDF, the California Department of Forestry. And I worked um, I worked one summer as a seasonal firefighter after graduation, and then I uh, got promoted to uh, what we call engineer, which is like first level supervisor. Okay. So that's... and then the rest is. Yeah, yeah, that th that that's great. So so you have had a long long career with with Cal Fire, and um, let's say beginning of nineteen nineties, right? Uh, what was the frequency of fires like in California? And uh, what were some of the ways that Cal Fire used to uh, fight fires back in the day? And um, how different uh, was it from, from how, how they do it now? Uh, the, the actual work that gets done on the ground is really not that different. It's pretty much the same. There's been some, some uh, incremental improvements like technology type stuff, you know, land navigation is a whole lot easier than uh, using a paper map and a compass. Um, the radio communications technology is a little better. Um, some stuff like the, the fire hose that we use that you have to carry physically on your back uh, is a lot lighter than it used to be. So stuff like that has changed, but the, the, the real work that gets done on the ground on a fire it hasn't changed that much. Yeah. Let me pause. Um, let me pause you there for a bit. Um, when, when you say the work on the ground, um, just just for the sake of my for my listeners uh, and even me, I mean, I, I don't know it either. What goes on the ground was is it just you know water or what? What methods do you use to um, stop? Fire? So every fire is different, but uh, in Cal Fire we send a pretty heavy initial response to every fire. Um, in, the, in the middle of summer in California, you typically get uh, 10 engines with 10 fire trucks, uh, two bulldozers, two hand crews, two air tankers and a helicopter to everything. Um, so uh, when the first, Usually it's the engines that arrive on scene first because they're more scattered around the state uh, better. Uh, when the first engine arrives on scene, they have to give a size up and a report on what the situation is back to the dispatcher. And then the crew goes to work and uh, we do what's called anchoring in. We try to find a place where we can make a good attack or start a good attack that the fire won't come around behind us or flank us or something so we anchor in and with the engines we usually what we do is we do what's called a progressive hose lay which we 
we take fire hose and we add sections as we go up the line and we apply water to the edge of the fire and put small bits of it out as we move. And we just keep adding hose and adding hose and other trucks come and they bring us water and about 97% of the fires, that's how we contain them is the two engines, the hose lays meat and the fire pretty much stops spreading. And then at that point, it's just a matter of what we call mopping up where we put out every ember and every spark that's left. And that might take, depending on how big the fire is, it might take a few hours or a few days. And then we go home and go to the next one. And that's pretty much been, I mean, I've been doing this for, this is my 47th fire season. And it's pretty much the same as it ever was. I mean, I promoted through the ranks. Uh, I was an engine captain for 26 years. So I did that fire truck initial attack with hose lays. And we also use hand tools along the way to, to uh, scrape line around the fire to bare mineral soil so that it won't spread. Mm -hmm. And I, I did that every summer for the last, like I said, for, for 26 years. And then uh, uh, I promoted to battalion chief, which is a, a, like our uh, supervisor. I had six stations that I supervised, and uh, when you get to the scene of the fire, you become the incident commander, so you direct the the other engines that are coming in, and uh, I really enjoyed that. I did that for eight years, and then just these last two years, I've been in a staff position where I run a, uh, uh, a forecast, a uh, wildfire forecast threat center where we try to anticipate where the fires are going to be and how bad they're going to be and all that kind of stuff using technology stuff. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, like, yeah, like you mentioned, yeah. you know, uh, the, the, the attack or, or how you work on the ground has not changed. And you briefly touched on technology uh, that you use to uh, probably predict fire or, um, um, or, or sort of, you know, understand, uh, the, the area that that a potential fire can happen. Uh, walk me through that process. How has technology changed things? Well, the science of it is is that there's there's three there's three big factors on any fire's uh, behavior, and it's the 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 vegetation or the fuel that's burning, what the characteristics of it are, the weather is really important, and then the terrain. And the terrain in California, as you may or may not know, is really diverse and um, pretty much everything you can think of. Uh, the vegetation types range everything from from desert scrub all the way to the biggest trees in the world, you know, the sequoias and everything in between. And the weather, well, in the summer, it's pretty much hot, dry and windy every day. So um so the way that technology has helped us um, is to try to quantify those effects of those three things, especially in the weather department. That That's really um, the advancements in weather forecasting have been significant. I know most people joke about the weather, but uh, the forecasting is so much better now than it was even 20 years ago. Um, as far as the precision 
and the timing of events and you know wind is really important so what time the wind blows and what direction it blows out of those kind of forecasts have really gotten much better i mean they're not perfect and they never will be it's a chaotic system and it's really complex but um so weather forecasting is really important and the technology has really advanced quite a bit um Terrain is terrain. I mean, there's not much you can say about the shape of the country except how steep it is and how tall it is. That's about it. Um, we've gotten better at, uh, I mean, it, it's amazing the topographical maps that we use. Some of them date back to the 50s and 40s. And, you know, terrain doesn't change much. Uh, so there, there, there's been some improvements in the, in the, in the really scale and precision of the maps, but maps are maps. And whether it's paper or digital, they're pretty much the same as they ever were. And then the the, the fuels, uh, character characterizing the fuels, uh, that's kind of a that's kind of an area where there's a lot of potential to do uh, work with the there's this this tool that we are starting to use called LIDAR. It's a laser uh, kind of laser dating and range uh, data ranging where we can kind of paint a 3D picture of the fuels in an area and then use uh, machine learning to quantify, you know, how much fuel is there? What does it weigh? How tall is it? Um, how, how, you know, how is it stratified from the ground to the tops of the trees? So we're we're making a lot of progress using that technology for fuels characterize characterizing fuels. Um, so there is a lot of stuff going on in that arena for sure in the fire behavior prediction. You know we have a mathematical fire spread model that we've been using literally the same model since the '70s. Literally, it's the same model mathematically. Um, but the data that we're able to put into it is so much better than it was. I mean, when I one of my um, one of my work study jobs in college was doing some beta testing on the original fire behavior, the computer based fire behavior models, and we had punch cards where you had to go in and type your data in, and it would punch a a physical cardboard. It looked like a, a, a paycheck, about the size of your paycheck. And it would punch some holes in these cards and they would go by and you'd punch more data in and then you would take your cards to the guy and they would put them in the machine and it would read them. And that's how we ran the program. So everything from that to now, that same program literally runs on your telephone uh, 10 times as fast and much better data. So. That's where we've come technologically. Yeah, that that's amazing. Uh, I was actually watching a YouTube video where they had an airplane and they were dumping some chemical on top of the forest. So mm -hmm. uh, how I see it is like some kind of a pretreatment where you know you you apply this chemical and the forest automatically becomes less prone to fire. Um, tell me more about well, that. Ideally, that's what happens, but. Um... So we have a, a, a fleet of 22 air tankers in California that are exclusively uh, in the service of CAL FIRE. 
And each one of those air tankers carries uh, 1,200 gallons of what we call fire retardant. Uh, it's basically a chemical, uh, it's an ammonium phosphate chemical that when it, when it falls onto the forest fuels, it can put the fire out, but what it really does is it slows the fire down and it causes the chemical reaction of the flames to be more of a charring or a smoldering than flaming. And so that, what it does, like I said, about 97% of the time, what it does is it allows us to get around the fire, slows the fire down, allows us to get our hose lays and hand line around the fire. Um, uh, so it's very effective on most fires. It's not too great on a really windy day. Um, and, and it's not too great in super drought stressed timber. Other than those kind of situations, it works great. So how often do you uh, use the aircraft to sp spray this? Every fire. Every, Every fire in the summer season. in California. Yeah. Okay. Just about. Yeah. So I mean, uh, if it's, mm -hmm. I mean, not not every fire. Some fires are are small and don't go anywhere. But uh, every fire that's spreading, we send two air tankers to. Pretty okay. much. Yeah. Wow. I I I think that's also uh, an interesting you know innovation, right? To um to decrease the kind of fire from flame to something like like charring um i i hear you mention about fuels and um in my head fuels are usually you know the conventional fuels like gasoline and diesel um, and all those in this context i think fuel means something different could you do you want to elaborate on that what do you mean by fuel in this case well the the chemical reaction is the same. It's the same exact chemistry. What goes on inside of your uh, cylinders in your car, if you're still driving a gasoline-powered car, or what goes on in a, a electrical power plant with natural gas or coal, same exact thing is going on uh, in the wildland on a wildland fire. It's it's converting uh, uh, cellulose into heat and light. Right. So um, how much how much heat and how big the flames are, that's kind of the what what, you know, affects whether we're able to be successful putting the fire out or not. OK, but it's the same. Mm. And and what is the major contributor uh, to a fire? Uh, wind is one. Heat is another. And bone dry uh, cellulose is uh, is another and also do these factors change as the months go so let's say between august september october uh, is wind a more significant contributor in october than say uh, september and so on um, could, could, could you break that down for us yeah, wind is probably the most important. If you had to pick one thing, wind is the most important thing. But um, you have to have dry fuels. They have to be available to burn, which means, you know, it's not springtime. It's not raining. 
the fuels are not, you know, freshly green from springtime. Um, so you can have really strong, we get, I mean, California has a Mediterranean climate and, and most of our rain falls from December to April. So most years, I mean, recently we've had some droughts that have been really long lasting and really devastating and we've had fires year round, but most years our fire season starts in May when the grass turns yellow, uh, the annual grasses die off and they become available to burn. Um, then as the summer, you know, our summers are pretty long and brutal and pretty hot. Uh, where I live, it's 100 degrees, you know, June, July, and August, it's 100 degrees most days, which is, I don't know what that is in centigrade, but it's hot, 40 plus maybe. Uh, so yeah, it's hot. June, July, and August, it's hot every day. So uh, the fuels, the heavier fuels, the brush, the brush, the shrubs, and the trees kind of go through a drying process through the summer. In the springtime, none of that stuff is available to burn. The only thing that burns is grass. And we get a lot of grass fires, especially at low elevations where most everything is grass covering the hillsides. But as the summer goes on, stuff dries out and then maybe after 4th of July, the brush becomes available to burn. And then maybe as we go from south to north in the state, you know, we have a lot more timber and trees. And when you get to late July, early August, that's when the trees start to be able to burn. And so what's really important at that point is the weather. And you can have a hot day, you can have a fire, but if you don't have much wind, we're pretty successful in putting those fires out. But when we get winds in the fall, and consequently, it's at the end of the summer, right? So the fuels are at their driest point of the year. And we get winds. The, the Santa Anas are famous in Southern California, but most of California gets uh, late fall windstorms. Uh, if we haven't had any rain at that point, that's when our fires get big. They get away from us, uh, and that's when they do most of their damage. So it looks like wind is probably the biggest contributor a in, you know, starting a fire and also it helps spreading the fire. So it probably makes, um, the job of the firefighters way more difficult than, than without the wind. Yeah, when it when it comes to uh, some types of fires, wind is important in the cause. Uh, like for instance, power line cause fires. You know the, that that's been a, a kind of a big deal in the last few years. Those are definitely related to strong winds. But most of our fire causes um, don't really have anything to do with the wind. It's mostly people doing dumb things in the woods. They're, uh, they're either, you know, I'd say a, a, a huge part of our fire causes is escape campfires, uh, people using fireworks, um, people doing flammable things like cutting metal pipe or welding, um, smoking, um, 
uh, railroads used to be a real big fire causer, but not so much anymore. Oh, how how so? Of course. Uh, well, they just have gotten better with since railroads are not coal, you know, engines anymore. Uh, diesel diesel uh, engines are really efficient and don't don't usually throw sparks. Every once in a while, we'll get a hot brake shoe on a on a uh, locomotive that causes a fire, but pretty rare anymore. Um, but most causes are most most of our fires. I I don't know seventy or eighty percent of the fires in California are people doing stupid stuff in the woods. That is a scary number. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, about twenty percent of our fires are lightning caused. Ten or twenty percent are lightning, which we can't do anything about. Uh, but a lot of our fires are preventable. Many many fires are preventable. Yeah, you know what is fascinating? I I hear these things in the news that, hey, the California fire season is getting longer and longer, and it's attributed to climate change. Now, if eighty percent of the fires are due to humans doing dumb things, then it's not really climate change, or like how much of a role has climate change played in played in this? Well, it plays a role, but it's a lot more subtle than uh, than that. Um... It's changing things in the way that uh, uh, the timing of things is what's changing. Um, the grass dries out earlier in the spring, and the summers are longer in the fall, and the rain and snow comes later in the year. And so our fire season is getting longer. And so the price uh, to some pay of the days are getting. Yeah, so the I'm price sorry? to pay for dumb dumb things is much more because uh yeah especially yeah. when you get especially when you get to that fall you know september october november time frame where again like i said the fuels are at their driest point of the year um and then the rain gets delayed right so in, normally in northern uh, i would say the first 20 years of my career in northern california by october 15th fire season was over uh, north of Fresno. They just didn't get any more fires. They got rain, and it didn't matter if they got a windstorm in the fall because they'd already had rain, and everything was green, and no fires. But that doesn't happen too much anymore. Um, when you think about the big fires in Northern California, the 2017 fires, 2018, uh, the um, the campfire in in Chico, those fire uh, those fires occurred when the rain did not come in October, and the winds came first, and the, that's when we get our most devastating. They're difficult to put out. They're usually devastating because they because they travel so fast, and they move into developed areas which. In California, you know, people love living in the rural areas. So there's pretty much not a fire that I've ever been on that didn't have some kind of consideration for uh, protecting somebody's house. That's just a normal situation in California now. Um, and so when you get a big fire in in these areas, uh, they're going to be the damage is going to be devastating. Hmm. You, you you spoke about campfire and that was one of the important things that I wanted to touch uh, in this episode. Um, 
how bad was it? Uh, I mean, I've seen documentaries and it's been covered quite a bit in the media, but I want to hear from someone who has worked on it. Uh, what was the biggest challenge and and just just how bad was it? So I'm on a uh, I'm on an incident management team, which is a uh, uh, in in Cal Fire we have six teams of about fifty individuals that are it's kind of a side job. It's not our day job. It's not what we do every day all day. But in the summer we get called together. We're on a rotational basis, so there's one team up every week, and our job is to manage these difficult and complex fires. So my team was on call that week. And, you know, when you're, when you're on call for your team assignment, you know, we kind of pay attention to fires. And I heard about this fire in, in uh, up above Chico and it sounded bad. And it was early in the morning. It started at six 30 or something like that. And by, by nine or 10 in the morning, it was looking pretty bad. But when I heard the hospital in Paradise was on fire, uh, I pretty much knew the call was coming and I started packing my my bags. Um, it's a big state, so it takes a long time for some of us to get there. Uh, uh, I got there the first night about 10 o'clock at night. And... The fire had run all the way from its point of origin, which was way up in the Feather River Canyon, all the way to the outskirts of Chico in one day, which is about, I don't know, I think it's 12 to 15 miles. So when I got there and the fire's burning, it's basically bumping into Highway 99, which is the main north-south thoroughfare in California. And... It's freely burning. I mean, there's not enough resources there to put it out. Um, I was like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be uh, a hard fire. And, you know, the first night, uh, the, the, uh, the initial attack resources that had been there all day, I mean, those guys, uh, you've seen the documentary. So the things that they saw and the things that they had to do to rescue people were just amazing. Every one of them. Every one of those uh, firefighters that first day did heroic things that they never expected to have to do. I mean, we had bulldozers that were clearing roads of wrecked vehicles. We had uh, school bus drivers that were ferrying people in and out of the burn zone that, you know, these aren't firefighters. These are just normal people that were trying to help. Um, we were using drugstores as ref safe refuge places until they burned down around us. Um, we had one of our uh, one of our chief officers rescued a bunch of people, and they they sheltered up in some person's garage until the house burned down around them and they could leave safely. So, you know, stories like that. I mean. So um, many of my friends, they they uh, are were engine drivers, and they were loading up as many people as they could get in their engine and driving out of the fire because, you know, people's cars had caught fire and they were on foot, and you know, just just amazing, devastating things happened that first night. So we get there, the team arrives, we take command of the fire the next morning, and 
at that point, the second day of the fire, most of the damage is done. I mean, the fire's still getting bigger, but now it's in more of a rural area where now the challenge is the wind has quit blowing or it slowed down quite a bit. It didn't quit blowing for a couple more days. But now the challenge is, is not only do we have to put lines around this gigantic fire, which is in pretty terrible, the Feather River country is some of the most terrible, steep, rocky country in California. So we got to figure out how to get fire lines around this fire. And we have to deal with the recovery. And that part of the recovery was, um, you know, all the people that were going to be rescued had been rescued. So now we have what we think are maybe hundreds of people dead inside the fire. So now part of our operation becomes managing, searching for dead bodies. And, you know, none of us have any experience in that, but it's become a thing now that is, you know, same thing happened in Maui just recently, where once the fire's out, the big operation is, you know, the rescues are over. Now it's time to find all the bodies and account for all the people that are missing. And so in addition to putting out this monster fire, um, we're not only, you know, doing fire suppression, but we're doing that kind of managing the search and rescue for the for the people that didn't make it. So in that way, it was really, really hard, really difficult. It was hard on everybody uh, because you know that there'd been so much suffering and there was many people that were burned and people that people that I worked with, fellow firefighters that were with us on the fire had lost everything. But they didn't know what else to do, so they kept working. And, you know, that was really sad. Matter of fact, that chokes me up just thinking about it now, even five years later. Um, so yeah, that was a really hard fire. And and it, and we'd had we'd had many large, difficult and damaging fires, but that has to be the worst one I was ever on. How many sleepless nights? Oh, uh, well, definitely the first four or five, you don't get much sleep because, you know, like I said, California is a big state. So when we pull the trigger to get help, it's coming from a long ways away a lot of times. So once you get everything that's easy and then stuff is coming and, and, and on that fire, we had we had resources from all over the United States that came to help. And uh you know, search and rescue teams from all over the place. So the first few days, you definitely um, are sleep deprived. You know, if you get four hours, that's pretty good. Um, but since then, uh, you know, if you're talking about like, like uh, thinking about the fire after the fact, I, I, I don't, those, that, I don't lose a lot of sleep over it. it. Because you know what, most of the time it's time to go to the next one. And, you know, there's always going to be another one. That is, uh, yeah, it, it, it chokes me up too. Uh, what, I mean, what amazes me is that a fire that size was still put out with the conventional hose, fire truck, yep. you know, whatever the things you spoke about Absolutely. initially. And, and that, that makes me thinking how how do you know where to start 
because you know <laughs> we're talking about fires uh that are spread spread over like acres and acres of land um you can't like you said you know the mapping of a fire is extremely difficult even though you have helicopters now um but yeah back to the question how do you know where to start or you do you just start you start at a place that's safe where you can make progress and you we have an expression you eat the elephant one bite at a time you know you you make a little bit of progress every day some days you lose some lines that get burned over and you have to start over but you know what somehow they all go out whether in the in the case of the in the in the case of the campfire um like i said it was in really difficult country really steep really nasty the 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 the, the middle fork and the west fork of the feather are just terrible uh country just really dangerous to be even to be on foot in um but what happened is is since it was late november uh it rained and when you get you know it was it, we were 15 or 20 days in when that happened but uh that is a tremendous benefit when you get rain that's really widespread and you get enough of it that it really puts the fire it, it doesn't put the fire out but it definitely quits moving and that allows us to get around it. But yeah, it's just, you build a little bit of line every day and you take advantage of places where the fire went out by itself and you, uh, you utilize, um, you know, rocky areas or rivers where the fire, you know, kind of holds in some of those areas in natural barriers and you connect the dots and eventually you get around it. And then you mop up for a week or two and you go, like I said, you go to the next one. But yeah. every fire I've ever been on is out today. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great achievement. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes I wonder people living in areas that are, you know, prone to natural disasters, right? Like you talk about New Orleans and Louisiana or Florida, which, you know, there's always a hurricane and, uh, it's common knowledge that there's going to be a hurricane season uh, and same applies to some of the areas in California. Certainly. Have you spoke, have you spoken to people and asked them, why do you guys live here? Because it's such a big risk and what has they, been their answers? They human, human nature is, is that this is not, that's not going to happen to me. You know, they see it on TV they know people that it's happened to, but all oh, that'll never happen here. That's just human nature. We just protect ourselves by that. So um, people are willing uh, to accept the risk because it's beautiful. It's quiet. Um, your neighbors are probably a long ways away. Um, you don't have the problems that you have in the city. You know, traffic and noise and and uh, bad neighbors, and they're willing to accept it. Um, you know, gambling that it it won't happen to them. You know, but and there's a lot of places in California. Honestly, there's a lot of places in California that it hasn't happened yet. That 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 day is coming probably, but 
maybe not, you know? Um, so yeah, people, people, people assess the risk in a different, in, in different ways and they ultimately, they accept it. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so based on your experience, what are probably the top five riskiest cities in California? Is it Redding, Chico and, and cities in that, that part of, uh, the state or, or, or elsewhere? Uh, I'm sorry. What was the, what was the question? Um, based off of your experience, what are probably the riskiest cities in, in California oh. to live? Uh, is it Redding Chico, uh, that part of the state or you never know? Is that, is that the uh, answer? I could, I could make you a really long list, but, uh, the Sierra foothills from Redding, all the way to Bakersfield. Um, the front country in the LA basin, uh, the foothills in Riverside and San Diego and San Bernardino County. Um, uh, the Bay Area, the, the Easter, the East Bay Hills from from Richmond to uh, Dublin. I mean, those are the places that jump out at me that a devastating fire, it's only a matter of time. Oh, wow. Uh, so, I mean, I live in the Bay Area and uh, no. <laughs> sounds like, uh, you know, Dublin, Pleasanton to uh, Richmond is is not a not a great place to live. Um, Wow. In the foothills, yeah, and I mean, there there's been a big fire there. Um, the the uh, uh, we called it the Tunnel Fire in 1989. It was only 1,200 acres, but it burned a thousand houses and killed 20 people or something like that. Hmm. So yeah, not the, yeah, not the best question when you are discussing something as serious as this. But uh, how are they named? Uh, is there a nomenclature oh. system like uh, hurricanes? That's a good question uh they're they're supposed to be named by some geographic feature that's close by um but a lot of times they get named by a street or a road that uh when a person calls 911 and gives their address the 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 dispatchers that receive those calls they just name it whatever the street is which is fine but um yeah that is a Every fire has a unique name, and most of the time we try not to reuse the names. So it becomes a challenge. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, with increasing increasing number of fires, that's going to be a challenge in the days coming forward. Um, yeah, I want to I want to end this podcast with one question that that I've always wanted to ask. Uh, you know, there have been so many fires in California, and uh, I hear that, you know, it's it's quite natural and there have been fires since time immemorial. Uh, it's one way for the red redwoods to replenish themselves or something. Um, but with so many fires having happened in California, what have been some of the learnings uh, from 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 your experience? And uh, what does Cal Fire do to learn from those sort of archives of how some fires were put out? Well, one of the biggest things that we've learned is uh, we have this huge database of 
uh, we try to survey every damaged or destroyed house that burns down in a wildland fire. And we collect some very specific data about those damaged or burned structures. And from that information, we've been able to learn a lot about what causes homes to burn down in a wildfire. And so we've used that information uh, to improve the building code in California. Chapter seven of the California building code is probably the best um, for new homes to be built with that building code. Those homes are really resistant to burning down in fires. We're finding that in areas where you have newer homes and older homes, the newer homes that follow chapter seven of the building code are really much more resistant to burning down. So that's one thing that we've learned. Um, we've learned a lot about, you know, over the years, I mean, I'm talking way, you know, way long time. We've learned a lot about what works and what doesn't work, what days stuff works and what days stuff doesn't work. And, you know, when you can be successful and when you won't be successful, no matter how good you are. Um, so individual experience is really important in our business. And the problem is, is that most people retire because we're firefighters and we've, some of us have kind of had a hard life. Uh, most people's bodies don't last much beyond 50. Um, so people retire at 50 or 55. And so they take all their knowledge with them. So uh, that is a problem, but um, it takes about a good 20 years before you're really comfortable. If, if you're, if you're, if you're thinking about it at all, it takes about 20 years before you really uh, feel like you know what you're doing on a wildfire. And so we're, we've, we've really tried to, uh, capture that knowledge and uh, try to pass it on to the next generation, those of us that are getting towards the end. And, uh, you know, that that's that's not just in firefighting, that's everywhere, but, but that's one thing that we've really learned is that's really important. Yeah, uh, you were you were telling me about uh, the chapter seven of, of the building code of California. Uh, I recently did an episode on uh, these five over one apartments um have you heard of those uh just wanted to give you no i haven't yeah so five over one apartments are these luxury apartments uh that uh that have sprung up in like major cities where you know the first floor is concrete and then everything else is wooden uh hmm. so um so yeah i just wanted to ask if if they are compliant with uh the building code seven if they built if they've been built in the last 10 years then yes they are okay so they have to be compliant there's no workaround okay. yeah there's no you don't have a choice That's... uh you know one thing one other thing that i've really learned is, is that we could save a lot of i mean we, we as a society we spend a lot of money rebuilding like you mentioned about florida and the and the gulf coast you know those people those poor people rebuild their homes over and over and over same thing happens in California. Um, I think we could save a lot of people's homes if people would retrofit them and hard harden them to cover up vents and uh, 
you know, remove wood siding and remove shake shingle roofs and stuff like that. Um, building hardness into homes is not that hard. It's kind of expensive, but over the long run, I think we could save a lot of money uh, if people would do that instead of, you know, waiting for it to burn down and rebuilding. Um, we've started a grant program to do a lot of that kind of retrofitting on on homes, and uh, we've got a lot of research behind it. And uh, I really think that's, if I lived, honestly, if I lived in those foothill areas, uh, my house would be a block house with a slate roof. Yeah. And, I, and no vegetation within 20 feet. Yeah, I think it'll be great if, uh, if uh, Cal Fire in association with, uh, you know, some of the city councils or or the counties can do some sort of an education program or, uh, you know, make people aware that, hey, this is a better way to do it than have your homes burned down during a fire. We're, we're trying. We do we do thousands and thousands and thousands of, of uh, residence inspections every year. I mean, the engine company officers go out and do them. I did them for decades. And, you know, we try to coach people on what to do, but uh, we don't have a lot of teeth to enforce those laws. And usually by the time we <laughs> we start in the spring inspecting people's homes, and by the time, you know, we give them a month to do their work and we go back, oh, you didn't, you know, you didn't do this. So we're, here's another notice. And then we go back another month later and here's another notice and then fire season's over. So it's a, it's, it's a lengthy and not very productive process. Yeah, but but it's quite remarkable the efforts that you're taking in not just, you know, putting out fire, but, uh, you know, educating people uh, to do the right things. And that's that's quite amazing. I want to ask another question, which is, you know, resources versus uh, fires. So has it ever happened that, you know, there are way too many fires and you guys were super hard pressed for resources at the time? And how did you see through that phase? Yeah, that happens pretty often, especially when we get uh, two two things happening in California where that happens. Uh, one, we get hundreds of lightning fires overnight from a lightning storm. Resources get really short, really fast. And you have to do what you can do to to do the work that you can do with the resources you have at hand and sometimes helps coming from a long, long ways away. So, you know, it might be coming from the other end of the state, might be coming from Nevada, might be coming from Arizona or Oregon or Texas or Montana or wherever it's coming from. It's going to be two or three days before you get help and you just have to tough it out and do what you can do and be safe about it. The other time is when we get these fall wind storms and we get multiple fires. Um, I can't remember whether it was 2018, I think it was 2017. Um, five out of our six CAL FIRE teams got activated overnight. We had five massive devastating fires that were burning at once and immediately nobody had enough resources. So again, you just have to, you have to do what you can do. There's not much you can do, but you know, you try to rescue and save as many people as you can and try to be safe yourself. And that's all you can do. Mm -hmm. And usually that time 
that period of time lasts about a day or two and then help arrives and then the weather changes and go to the next one like i said yeah yeah in a way good that you know the weather changes and things get better uh, yeah uh, if you were to say something to cal fire or the administration about the resources do you uh, would you suggest that they expand uh, the resources well it's a the fire department resource game is a tough game because if you had all the resources that you could possibly use about 97% of the time you would be sitting idle hmm. it's only in those 3% of days where you need the extra help so we do stuff like we we train the national guard so that their helicopter pilots know how to drop water out of their helicopters we um uh we use volunteers in some places you know to expand capacity we use uh um we use our military in some circumstances where they have planes where they can slide a tank into the back of it and drop retardant so we have a a, a capability to expand um when things get bad but again you, you you could ne it would never be economical to have as much resources as you need on those days. Yeah, that 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 makes total sense. Um, uh, Chief Chavez, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. I think, um, you know, I I used to think Cal Fire as this department that puts out fire, but you know, I learned so much today talking to you. Uh, the the kind of pilot programs that you do, and then uh, the whole house inspection part was was quite. Uh, quite amazing uh, uh, it's 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 amazing and 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 i think people should know how much work you guys put uh, towards uh, saving every californian's life and and protecting it during the fire season not just during the fire season but but on other times as well so um, i really hope uh, you continue mentoring new firefighters and pass on your wealth of information from close to 40 years of experience with firefighting so Thank you so much. And it was it was an honor and a pleasure talking to you. Glad to do it. Thank you. Thank you so much.